Hello and welcome to Habemus Papam, episode 162, Innocent II. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Habemus Papam. So if you remember from last week, we set up an epic showdown over the election of this pope. The Frangipani faction, who were led by the Cardinal Amri, the Chancellor of Pope Honorius, had locked themselves in a monastery to protect them from the Pier Leone faction, their rivals, who had their eyes set on the papacy. Now, the head of the Pier Leone faction was Cardinal Peter Pier Leone, a papal diplomat who happened to be away in France during the previous conclave and was unable to participate. And this time, he's in Rome, and he you better believe he's going to be involved. Cardinal Amri chose eight cardinals to be a, this smaller committee to elect the next pope, rather than follow to the letter of the law the decree of Nicholas II. Now, most of these eight cardinals were the cardinal bishops, and the cardinal bishops technically are the ones, according to Nicholas II's decree, who elect the pope, and then it's ratified by the rest of the cardinals, but it's not quite the letter of the law here. Now, this group were required to wait until Honorius II was buried, and then they could elect the next pope. Now, interestingly, Cardinal Pierre Leone was a member of this group. He was a cardinal bishop. The evening Honorius II died, Honorius II was temporarily buried in the monastery in which he had died and in which the cardinals were all locked in. That way they said, okay, we waited. He's buried. He's in the ground, technically. And then the, eight, the group of eight cardinals got together and Cardinal Amri directed them that they select the pope. And he said, we better make it unanimous. Whoever disagrees publicly afterwards with the result, will be anathema because that person would just bring about a tremendous scandal. Now, Cardinal Pier Leone, who knew how to count votes, realized that this was aimed at him. Most of the cardinals present were of the Frangipani faction. In fact, the majority were of the Frangipani faction. And if he bound himself to these rules, then he obviously couldn't protest the ridiculousness of this election. And he wanted to do that because he knew he was going to lose. And he didn't want anyone to think that he supported this uh, group of uh, Frangipani supporters. So he got himself out of that monastery. Shortly afterwards, the remaining cardinals, along with a couple others who were attending at the deathbed of Pope Honorius, 12 total, elected Gregorio Paparescu, the cardinal priest of San Angelo in Peschiera. He took the name Innocent II and was brought immediately to the Lateran to be installed as pope. Now, it was so quick that he arrived at the same time as the body of Pope Honorius II, which had been re-dug out of the ground and brought to the Lateran for its final burial. Now, you know the Pierre Leone aren't going to take this lying down, but before we get to their response, we need to get to know Gregor- Gregorio Paparescu. We know very little about him personally before his ecclesiastical career, however. He was made a cardinal in 1116, and he served very ably as a papal diplomat throughout the entire investiture crisis. He was one of two cardinals sent to Henry V to negotiate the Treaty at Worms in 1122, which officially ended the investiture crisis. The other one who was sent was Honorius II, and he was sent several times to France, ironically with Cardinal Peter Pierleoni on diplomatic missions of various sorts. He was made the Archdeacon of Rome by Pope Honorius, and he served in that capacity until the Pope's death in 1130. Which brings us back to this crazy, super sketchy election on February 14th, 1130. The Pier Leone, in fact, most of Rome were not happy. 
Cardinal Peter Pierleoni assembled the remaining cardinals who were in Rome, in fact, more cardinals than elected innocents, along with the nobles and the people of Rome at the Basilica of San Marco, and was himself elected Pope Anacletus II. And so we have two elections on the same day, one pope and one antipope, and it's not immediately clear who is who. Now, I can't really build the suspense because I started this podcast by talking about Pope Innocent II, so clearly Anacletus is the antipope. But you can see how it would be hard to figure this out. Anacletus was elected more openly by more cardinals and the people of Rome. Innocent was maneuvered behind closed doors by only 12 cardinals. Now, technically, according to the decree of Nicholas II, which governs the rules of papal elections, the cardinal bishops were the electors of the pope, and the majority of the cardinal bishops did elect Innocent. But Nicholas II also said that the rest of cardinals played a role too. And to throw more doubt into the equation, there were a bunch of cardinals not in Rome at the time. Most of them supported Anacletus, but not all of them. This division, as you might suspect, split the church. The supporters of Innocent tended to be the more reforming, younger cardinals, and the families like the Frangipani, who supported the reform movement, and the reforming religious orders like the Cistercians and the Norbertines, and tended to be more pro-imperial. The supporters of Anacletus tend to be more institutional Roman cardinals, who were more traditional and were allied with the Pierleoni, and more pro-Norman. Now, when I list all that out, you can begin to think, well, if they're more reform-minded, then how come they did this super sketchy election that doesn't seem to be reform-mannered? It's very confusing. These factions, they it's hard to see one is the good guys and one is the bad guys. Now, what happens next is that these two factions are supported by various kings and rulers. So, initially, the Holy Roman Empire, France and Spain, supported Innocent, while the Normans, the Roman people themselves, Scotland, and the Aquitaine supported Anacletus. England was on the fence, but more on that later. In Rome itself, Anacletus moved to occupy the key strategic points, controlling especially Castle San Angelo and St. Peter's Basilica. Innocent eventually was forced to flee to France and promote his cause in exile, and that never really looks good. Once he left Rome, even some of his Roman supporters and some of the Frangipani family gave in to Anacletus. But by now, you're probably thinking, why are we talking about Innocent as Pope at all? Why are we not clearly siding with Anacletus? But this is where the heavy hitter of the age bursts back into our story. And you guessed it, St. Bernard of Clairvaux is that heavy hitter. St. Bernard was adamantly a supporter of Innocent, and he worked faithfully to make sure that he was considered the true Pope. He wrote letters to kings, lords, cardinals, bishops, all of them making the case for Innocent. He swung the French, who were uncertain, to Innocent's side, and he introduced Innocent to the French king. He talked personally to Henry II, the King of England, and convinced him to support Innocent. He almost single-handedly swung support behind Innocent's election. And I'll read you a section from one of these letters because it's absolutely epic. He writes, For behold, Innocent, that anointed of the Lord, is set for the fall and rise again of many. Those who are of God gladly join themselves to him. But he who is of the opposite part is either of Antichrist or Antichrist himself. The abomination is seen standing in the holy place, and that he may seize it like a flame he is burning in the sanctuary of God. He persecutes innocent, and in him all innocence. Innocent in sooth flees from the face of Leo, as saith the prophet, The lion hath roared, who will not fear." After a couple of years, basically all of the rulers of Europe and the vast majority of the clergy backed Innocent. He was especially favored, as I mentioned, by the reforming religious orders that had sprung up at this time, 
and were really the soul of the church, the Carthusians, the Cistercians, and the Norbertines. In fact, one of the other big supporters of Anacletus was St. Norbert of Zanten, who, like St. Bernard, was very influential in bringing about Innocent's ultimate success and was the one who really convinced the Germans to join his side. Anacletus, meanwhile, maintained his power base in Rome and was supported by Roger, the Norman ruler of Sicily, but it was clear that things were not going his way. In 1132, Lothair III, the king of the Germans, led an expedition to Rome to remove Anacletus and put Innocent back in charge. They made it into the city but were unable to dislodge Anacletus and his supporters. So they installed Innocent again at the Lateran, on the other side of town from Anacletus at St. Peter's, and there Innocent crowned Lothair III Holy Roman Emperor. But they soon had to leave again. Now a second attempt came in 1137, which brought Innocent back to Rome. Roger of Sicily still supported Anacletus, but St. Bernard convinced him to go to a debate between three innocent cardinals and three Anacletan cardinals, which is actually pretty cool. Now, Roger went, but he wasn't convinced, but it ended up being a moot point because Anacletus just died in 1138. Now, his supporters didn't give up. They elected a successor who took the name Victor IV, another antipope, but St. Bernard helped convince him to give himself up to Pope Innocent, and the schism was officially ended. But this isn't the last we're going to hear from Roger of Sicily, who still hadn't recognized Innocent, so remember his name. Now, Innocent then called a council in Rome in Lent of 1139, which was so well attended today that even though it was originally intended just to be a local affair, we consider it an ecumenical council, Lateran II, the 11th ecumenical council. At the council, the Pope condemned the supporters of Anacletus and deposed those bishops and cardinals who had supported him. Now, St. Bernard, by the way, was not happy about this retribution, and he let the Pope know exactly what he thought about his harsh treatment of his opponents. Now, along with the usual canons condemning those who broke celibacy and simony, the Second Lateran Council also condemned the following. Canon 14 says, We entirely forbid, moreover, those abominable jousts and tournaments in which knights come together by agreement and rashly engage in showing off their physical prowess and daring, and which often result in human deaths and danger to souls. While Canon 29 says, We prohibit under anathema that murderous art of crossbowmen and archers, which is hateful to God to be employed against Christians and Catholics from now on. So no jousts and no crossbows permitted, according to Lateran II. So with all that done, we have one or two major events in Innocent's Pontificate to talk about, one involving St. Bernard of Clairvaux and a quarrel with a brilliant young theologian you may have heard of before, Peter Abelard. Peter Abelard was born in 1079 to a family of minor nobility in France. He studied in Paris. It would have eventually become the University of Paris. And he was recognized from an early age to be one of the most brilliant scholars of his generation, which unfortunately went to his head. He was a master of dialectic, logical argumentation, and he could run circles around some of the erstwhile teachers and later his opponents. After bouncing around from place to place, he finally established himself as a teacher in Paris, and he was immensely popular. And it was here in Paris that he first met and fell in love with Heloise. In fact, if you've heard of Peter Abelard, you've probably heard of him in the context of his passionate affair with Heloise, which led to her uncle taking fairly violent revenge on Abelard, his dismissal from Paris, and the retreat of both young people to the monastery or the convent. But he couldn't really stop fighting, and eventually he got into a fight over Trinitarian theology with the pupils of St. Anselm, and eventually with St. Bernard of Clairvaux. St. Bernard discovered that not only was Abelard's published theology of the Trinity heretical, it, it seemed to verge on several ancient heresies, but also his moral theology was excessively Pelagian, which means it didn't give enough prowess to grace. 
St. Bernard met with Abelard in private to try and get him to recant, to try and show him where the truth of theology was. But when he refused, he then denounced Abelard to a council of French bishops. Abelard appealed to the Pope, but St. Bernard sent a letter ahead of him so that before Abelard could even get to Rome, Innocent II had already confirmed the French bishop's condemnation of his theology. But actually, this story has a happy ending, because after his condemnation, Peter the Venerable, the current and tremendous abbot of our favorite monastery, Cluny, and another big supporter of Innocent II, wrote to the Pope asking him to commute his sentence. He then brought Peter Abelard back to Cluny, reconciled him with St. Bernard, and allowed Abelard to live as a monk in Cluny until his death. Now, there was one other guy involved in this story that I haven't mentioned yet, but I should because he'll pop up later. His name is Arnold of Brescia, and he was a canon of St. Augustine. Now, he was a major student of Abelard, and when Abelard was condemned, he was the only person who still fought for his disgraced teacher. He preached Abelard's teaching along with the teaching of radical poverty for the church, calling it to completely divest itself of all temporal authority and any worldly goods. Now, St. Bernard, of course, wrote against him as well, and he too was condemned at a council of French bishops, and so Arnold, Arnold fled Italy, where he had been, to Germany. But we will meet him again. Now, the second major story does not have such a happy ending, and it brings us to the end of the pontificate of Innocent II. In 1139, Ranulf, the governor of Apulia in southern Italy, died, which meant that there was no one strong enough to resist one of Innocent's main enemies, Roger of Sicily, from taking over. Now, Innocent II wanted Apulia and Capua, also in southern Italy, to be independent. They could be checks on Norman power in the south and a good buffer between himself and a hostile Norman king. Roger, however, claimed it as his own and invaded southern Italy in May of 1139. So Pope Innocent II countered with his own army and the two met in the town of Mignano. There on July 22nd, 1139, the papal army suffered a terrible defeat and Pope Innocent and all his advisors were captured by Roger II of Italy. Roger forced Innocent to recognize him as king of Sicily and to give him the territory of Capua and Apulia, giving him effective control of all of southern Italy. In return, Roger said he would recognize Innocent as his feudal lord, but in reality this was just for show and it allowed Innocent to save face. Tensions would continue between the two, but for now, Innocent realized that he was beaten and he returned to Rome. Now, while the Romans did welcome him back, this new threat on their border added to a general feeling in Rome of dissatisfaction and nationalism. This guy, Innocent, forces himself to be pope because of outside forces, and then he loses a big battle against the Sicilians, and we don't like him from the start, and now we have this pressure and tension and we could get all killed, and, and what the heck? And the Roman people were, were proud of their heritage. They were Romans, after all. Rome ruled the world for centuries, century, and don't you ever forget it. And so they thought innocence giving in to Roger reflected very poorly on their own dignity and the dignity of Rome as a whole. So they asked Innocent to repudiate the terms he made with Roger, which he refused to do. This then caused them to stew for a while until something else sparked an outright revolution. In 1142, Innocent attacked the neighboring town of Tivoli, just up the hill from Rome because it continued in schism, not accepting Innocent as the true pope. Now, other popes had done this in the past, but the difference here was that Innocent lost the battle, and a lot of Romans died in the assault. And the Romans, half of them still didn't like Innocent as pope, and now they're going to attack other people who don't like Innocent as pope, and then they lose, and they all die in this wasted assault. 
And so the Romans wanted revenge. At least they wanted some victory against this stupid town of Tivoli. So in 1143, they tried again. But before they could put the whole town to the sword, which is what they really wanted to do, the Pope had made a separate peace treaty with Tivoli, robbing the Romans of their planned vengeance and robbing them of the chance of burning and pillaging and, you know, making themselves feel a little bit better. Well, this was really the last straw for the people of Rome, which led by the Pier Leone faction, who had supported the anti-Pope Anacletus, broke out in rebellion, declaring itself a republic again. They reestablished the Roman Senate, and they denied the Pope any role in temporal government of Rome. But before Innocent could do anything to quell the rebellion, he fell sick and died on September 24th, 1143. And this rebellion is going to fester for some time. He was buried first in the Lateran, but eventually his body was moved to Santa Maria in Trastevere, and he was succeeded by Pope Celestine II, and we will talk about him next time. Thank you for listening to Habemus Papam. You can check out the rest of the Catholic Bites podcast at catholicbitespodcast.com or find us on Apple Podcasts. Thank you and God bless you. <laughs>